Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Rice Kill Eat podcast. My name is Tyler Pruitt. I am the host of the show. I just want to thank you guys for joining me today. That is a genuine thank you because without you guys, I quite literally would not be able to do this. I have to have an audience in order to continue putting out this show. And of course, you guys continue to come back. And I just want to thank you guys very much. Now, if this is your first time listening to the Rice Kill Eat podcast, Thank you for checking us out. I really do appreciate you spending some time with me as I share some of the great content that I've been able to share with my audience. And thank you for checking us out. And thank you for, for taking a chance and putting me in your ears for a little bit of time today. Thank you so much. Now, the purpose of the Rice Kill Eat podcast is to talk with people about what hunting truly means to them. And it's the focus of the Rice Kill Eat podcast is to really just bring a new appreciation for the act of hunting and bring a new awareness of what we're actually doing in terms of our pursuits of God, freedom, and the great outdoors. I've had some great conversations with guys like Jeff Danker, Jeremiah Dowding, Jack Carr. I've had some great conversations and great topics about women and hunting, filming hunts. And it's been a great experience overall, just being able to put this content out here and being able to to share conversations that I'm having with people from across the country about what hunting means to them and about what they enjoy about the process of hunting. If you guys haven't subscribed yet, go ahead and subscribe to the show. I've got some really good episodes, including today's planned out. Go ahead and subscribe to the show. That way you guys don't miss out on any of the future content that's put out there. Also, go ahead and check us out on our social media outlets. So we are on Facebook and Instagram very active on both of those, um, probably more active on Instagram, but go ahead and check us out on both of those. If you want to find us on Instagram, it is at RKE afield. So that's RKE as in rice, kill eat at RKE afield. And then on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash RKE afield. If you search our name, RKE as in rice, kill eat a field, then you'll be able to find us on there. Give us a follow, give us a like, subscribe to the show. Now, of course, if you're getting any value from the show, go ahead and give us a rating on iTunes and go ahead and give us a rating on your po podcast platform. And what that does is just pretty much it, it may help convince somebody who is wanting to listen to the show, who's interested in the show. And if they see that it's getting a lot of positive ratings and it's getting a lot of good things that people are saying about it, then of course it's going to continue to build momentum from there. I'm very grateful. I say it all the time at the, in the intros of my, my shows, I'm very grateful for the audience that has come around the rise kill eat podcast and it's, it's been a very fun experience being able to connect with people from all across the country that are listening to the show and go ahead and join us throughout our journey of the rise kill eat podcast now one quick announcements before we get into the show we are in the midst of our season opener sale at rkeafield.com so that's our official website all of our merchandise can be found there there's also some links for the podcast that can be found on there as well but we are in the middle of our season opener sale, which is the biggest sale that we've ever had in the history of Arcadia Field. So be sure to check that out. We have items that are marked down up to 50% off of their usual price. And this is a, a sale that is going on as, as a way for us to celebrate the, the opening of the hunting seasons. A lot of places are getting into hunting right now. A lot of places have been hunting for a while. Some places like Kentucky, where I live, it's it's going to be opening up here soon. And it's, it's just a way for us to really celebrate and bring in the community of hunters and a way for us to celebrate the the opening of the season. So check out, check that out at rkeafield.com. 
You don't need a promo code for any of that. All the prices on there have already been marked down. All you have to do is go on there, pick what you want, go ahead and check out. Now, before you check out, though, I want to offer something to my podcast listeners specifically. So this isn't something I'm going to toss around on the on social media. This is something that is for podcast listeners specifically. If you use promo code podcast, so that's all capitals podcast use promo code podcast, it will give you free shipping on your order. So not only are you going to get a shirt or a hat that is way marked down its usual price, but you're also going to get that with free shipping. So you, literally all you're paying for is that is that item that you're interested in. So again, that's promo code podcast, and you can find that at rkeafield.com. So I have Dr. Carl Miller on today's show. Dr. Miller is a professor at the University of Georgia, and he is also the director of Whitetail Research at the University of Georgia in their Warnell School of Forestry. And this was a really great conversation that I had with Dr. Miller. It was it was something that was very educational for me as a whitetail hunter. It was something that I found a lot of value in. And just being able to have the opportunity to talk with him about his expertise was a lot of fun. And I think you guys are really going to enjoy this episode as well. This is an episode that I definitely recommend any whitetail deer hunter to listen to, get out your notepad, take notes, because what he does is he basically goes through each of the deer senses. It's like it's hearing, it's smell, it's vision, all these senses, and he breaks those down. He gives us the anatomy, the biology of it, and also the physiology. So how everything works. So I'm really excited being able to share this episode with you guys today. And again, go ahead and get out a notepad and because I, I promise you, you're going to find some value on becoming a better hunter whenever you know what your prey is capable of. And I learned a lot from this episode. I learned a lot from this conversation with Dr. Miller, and we get into that very deeply on today's episode of the Rice Kill Eat podcast. So one more time, go ahead and get out your notepad, take some notes and enjoy the show. so much for joining me today and talking with me on the on a Sunday evening. I'm, I really do appreciate you taking some time and, you know, coming on the Rise Kill Eat podcast with me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you so much. You're a professor at, you correct me if I'm wrong, but you're a professor at the, is it the Warnell School of Forestry and Natural Resources? And that's at University of Georgia. That's correct. That's correct. Been there, been, been there for, I think, 33 years now. 33 years. Wow. 33 years. Did you start out as a professor or did you, how, how did you start out there at Georgia? Well, actually I came here about 37 years ago to work on my PhD under Larry Marchman, who was a very famous deer biologist you know, in his day. And after that, I was hired on here after I got my PhD in 85. So you've been there quite a while. Yeah. It's home now. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, that's Athens, Georgia, right? right. That's where your facilities are located. Yeah, and I, I, I never would have thought that I was going to spend the rest of my life in the South, but I, I acclimated and I enjoy it down here. Where did you originally come from? I'm originally from northern Pennsylvania, up in the big woods of Pennsylvania, deer country. Okay. Yeah, did you grow up hunting and that kind of thing? Yeah, I, I grew up in a family of uh, deer hunters. We had the traditional deer camp. We had a lot of, I mean, up, up in northern Pennsylvania, that part of the world, you got a lot of opportunity to be out in the woods and doing outdoor stuff from trout fishing, deer hunting, and so on. Uh, great place for a kid to grow up, and I spent most of my time out in the woods. 
That's great. That's great. That's that's definitely something I can relate to. I mean, that's something that I li- actually I live in uh, Eastern Kentucky right now, right on the edge of the Appalachian Mountains in Moorhead. We mm-hmm. have Moorhead State University right down the road here, right. and uh, we're surrounded by the the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains with some of the um, Daniel, Daniel Boone National Forest. So we have thousands of acres of this public land that we can go out and play on. And of course we got cave run Lake, which is one of the better, uh, musky fishing lakes mm-hmm. in the country really. And, um, it's a, it's a pretty neat being able to have my kids, you know, growing up in an area like this where they have access to all these, these basically outdoor adventures. I mean, it's, it's pretty cool being able to, you know, get kids out and, you know, and similar to, to your story there where you're able to spend a lot of time outdoors. And I'm looking forward to allowing my kids to do something very similar yeah that's part that's part of the world we're thinking about renee and i are thinking about moving somewhere into virginia west virginia eastern kentucky tennessee somewhere when i retire in a relatively short time yeah there we go yeah i'd say yeah 30 33 years i'd say that's probably coming up on you isn't it? yeah i got about one more to go <laughs> there we go there we go so starting to wind down a little bit for you but yeah thank you so much for for being on the show today i really do appreciate it and uh i know this time of year is usually pretty busy for a lot of people with hunting seasons coming up and that kind of thing, you know, getting, getting everything prepped. And I'm sure you're getting a lot of questions of, you know, why are deer acting this way? Why are they behaving this way? You know, why can't I get them to do this? All that kind of thing. And that's really what I wanted to kind of pick your brain with a little sure. bit today. Sure. So, uh, you guys have been doing a lot of research at the UGA deer lab over like sensory capabilities of whitetails, right? Yeah, we've been working on different aspects of deer, uh, deer sensory perception. Jeez, when actually I was doing my research for my PhD, uh, that was where we started doing some of the early work that we did was mainly with the sense of smell, uh, you know, the different glands the deer have, how they utilize those glands, what are the composition of the different glands, gland secretions, are they even functional in white-tailed deer, you know, so we did that work on on that. And that carried on into the subsequent looks at uh, deer hearing capabilities, and then uh, re- more recently we looked at deer visual capabilities, and that's been a, that's been an eye opener, uh, no pun intended. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> but what was the what was the real motivator behind you know getting into basically getting into why a deer or how a deer sees and you know how it smells and those kind of things? What was was hunting a big motivator for that, or was it just simple biology? was just well, simple research purposes. Well, yeah. It, well, you know, there's two different ways you look at it. One of them was my personal curiosity and I, everything I wanted to figure out on why, what makes a deer tick. So I wanted to spend a lot of time understanding how deer perceive the world so that I, then I could, I could hunt them better. Right. Um, but also there are other ramifications for that. You know, some of the vision work is tied in real well to, you know, deer's visual acuity and visual senses as far as deer vehicle collisions and so forth, same thing with the sense of hearing, uh, you know, crop depredation. There's all kinds of aspects, you know, applied aspects of this research that would, you know, help with the management of the deer, as well as understanding just why deer do what they do. Yeah, that's, that's definitely, a, it's definitely something that as I was going through and researching, you know, through some of the things that you guys have done in the recent years, that's something that has been very helpful is just going and just basically a way for us to become better hunters. And I know I've benefited from that just, just by doing the little bit of research that I've been able to do through what you guys have done. It's just fascinating stuff. And then the more we find out, the more, the the cooler it gets because deer live in a completely different world than we do when it comes to a lot of their sensory capabilities. 
Right. Yeah. And they, they definitely, they perceive things differently. And I definitely want to break down a lot of their, the individual, uh, senses with you here, here in just a second. But as a, as a science teacher, um, this, the whole, the whole biological aspect of everything. And as somebody with science, I teach science full time and then do this little podcast on -hmm. the side. And, um, so the whole aspect of the biology and how, you know, how a deer works and, you know, how everything, how they kind of perceive the world and what keeps them out of danger or puts them into danger sometimes. Exactly. It's, it's, just, it's all really fascinating for me. And that's, that's of course why I had to come to the, the top dog in the world of deer researching and of course had to, had to contact you. So appreciate it. But, uh, so how exactly, yeah, how exactly does a deer smell? I mean, is, is their nose as good as, as what it's perceived to be? Hey, you know what? How, you know how many times I've been asked that question over the last thirty-five years. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I can, I'm sure you probably can't. You lost count a long time ago. Yeah, it's, you know the answer. One of those. The answer to that question is kind of yes. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, <laughs> right. it, it's really hard I've to experience it. That's for sure. <laughs> you know, and, and maybe we need to back up a little bit first of all. You know, and, and, and okay. you think about what a deer does. You know, when you know why a deer when it's a deer is walking around. What's it thinking about? You know, everything about a deer is about one of three things. What are they going to find to eat? Or how, you know, so how, you know, how do they use their senses to procure uh, forages and so forth? How are they going to keep from being eaten because they are a prey species and the only way they're going to survive and reproduce is by not being eaten, right? So predator avoidance is number two. And then they live in a social environment. They got to communicate with other deer. They got to communicate, you know, all kinds of aspects of social behavior as well as reproductive behavior so that they can make more deer. So those are the three things. So every time we think about a deer, whether their senses or their behavior and stuff like that, it's got to be filtered through those three questions. Why is a deer doing what it's doing? And it has to be related to one of those three questions. So then when it comes to the sense of smell, you know, you always hear hunters and, you, you know, they, they always try to, you know, everybody knows that the deer's sense of smell is tremendous and that deer can smell you, uh, you know, from a, quite a long distance, right? But... A lot of people think that that's their most important predator avoidance uh, sense, which it's not, because the sense of smell is actually very good and is very effective as, at avoiding predation if and only if the predator is upwind. <clears throat> if the predator is crosswind or the predator is downwind or the human is crosswind or downwind, the sense of smell is, is totally useless to the deer as far as predator avoidance. So you can get around a deer's sense of smell just by being downwind of the deer or where you expect the deer to be. So having all, you know, all these different kind of, you know, uh, cover scents and scent eliminators and stuff like that, you know, they, they, I think they're more of a crutch uh, for, for a lot of hunters who don't want to spend the time of understanding, you know, trying to pattern the deer and setting themselves up in a situation where they don't have to worry about the sense of smell. So, you know, that sense of smell... Uh, it's important for predation avoidance, but it's probably more important for deer and the other two questions that we talked about. The first one being finding food, which that's how a deer finds food. They don't go walking around through the woods looking for food. They don't carry a field guide to the edible plants of the southeast with them every time they're going out foraging, right? right. So they're using their sense of smell, you know, so their sense of smell tells them whether something's palatable or not palatable. That's how they find an acorn. You know, if you're ever sitting in a tree and you see a deer coming underneath your tree and, you know, when the white oaks are falling, they sound like little vacuum cleaners coming through there sniffing on the ground. And they can smell a good acorn and they can tell the difference between a good acorn and a bad acorn without picking it up. 
because, you know, frankly, if they had to look at look for acorns on the ground, their eyes aren't good enough at that point to actually see that close and identify an acorn up that, that, that close. So it's the sense of smell is driving that aspect of it. And then finally, the sense of smell is also driving their communication, how deer communicate. They've got seven different glands that we know of that they use for communication. They use urine for communication. So, uh, you know, they live in a social environment, but they live in a social environment that's sometimes they're not, you know, they're not like elk where they're in a, in a herd. Sometimes they're communicating that their, their presence in an area through their sense of smell, not through anything that they do personally or, you know, interacting with other deer. So they can leave that kind of odor there in their absence and relay a lot of information there as well. So that was a long answer to your question. <laughs> no, that was perfect. No, that was great. No, I, I liked it. That was, that was perfect. So of course a, a deer is going to use, you know, their sense of smell and use leave scents behind, you know, of course, come October, November, when the rut's kicking in, even in December, when you get, uh, you know, late rut season coming in. But what about the other nine months of the year? How are they using the, are they doing something very similar? I mean, are they, you know, still leaving those scents behind so that the other deer can communicate, communicate with them? They know when they were there and that kind of thing. So other than the rut season, breeding season, are they still using those, those scents to communicate with each other? Yeah, you know, and deer use, they, they do a couple of different things. Some of they they leave scent deposits out there in the woods. Uh, you've probably heard of like the licking branch that, that uh, but, you know, bucks yeah. will communicate all throughout the year, leaving some type of, of scent on that overhanging branch that sometimes will ultimately become a scrape during the breeding season. But they're communicating their presence in an area even through those licking branches. But, you know, so they're, they're they've got an ability to communicate their presence in their absence but they also communicate by scent in, you know, when they're present with other deer. You know, you're probably familiar with the tarsal gland, which is the most important gland that deer have. And that's the gland that where a deer carries its personal identity. We look at each other and recognize each other by our facial features. Deer identify each other by the scent of the, that's coming off their uh, tarsal gland. And we spent a lot of work trying to figure out how the tarsal gland works. And it's pretty fascinating how that actually does work. So we can talk about all the seven glands that deer, got and, and that deer have, and some of which probably aren't even functional as far as scent-producing glands. But the, like I said, the most important one is the tarsal gland. And the tarsal gland is that, that, that long hair on the inside of the deer's hind legs that they urinate over. like during, a dark you know, color. And that's what takes on that characteristic. Yeah. Yeah, during the rut... Those bucks are almost exclusively urinate over their tarsal glands, and they take up that real strong characteristic rutting odor because of that. But what a lot of people don't realize is that all deer do this, and they do this all year round. A doe, even a doe, will get up usually from you know gets up from a nocturnal bed or something like that. She'll urinate over her tarsal glands, and you know leave some of that urine on that that gland, uh, those those hairs there, and oftentimes lick off the excess and go on their ways. So they're all carrying a scent with them. It's only that during the rutting season, there's two things happen. One is bucks, and particularly mature bucks, uh, almost exclusively rub urinate, plus the composition of their urine changes because their physiology is changing. They're, they're taking on, you know, their, their testosterone levels are much higher. But what's really fascinating is that the, the scent on that tarsal gland is not being produced by that tarsal gland itself. The scent on that tarsal gland is actually being uh, uh, is being held there. It's, it's actually being produced by the urine, and it's, and it's basically bacterial decomposition that's occurring on that tarsal gland that's ca causing that characteristic scent. And it gets really interesting when you think about it. Uh, what 
the way that gland works is underneath those long hairs on the inside of the deer's hind legs, there's a bunch of each for each one of those hairs, there's a gland associated with it called a sebaceous gland. Now, every hair on a deer has a sebaceous gland associated with it, just like we have a sebaceous gland. But underneath the tarsal gland, they're grossly enlarged. They're huge. And they produce a lot of this what's called sebum or fatty material. And that fatty material goes out and coats that hair. And what that hair, what that coating does, that sebum does, is it selects out of the urine fat-soluble compounds and holds them on the tarsal gland. But the problem is anything coming out in urine has to be water-soluble, right? Right. Well, and it turns out there's a lot of things in your body that are fat-soluble compounds, but they get around in your bloodstream by what happens is your liver attaches some other structure to it, like a, 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 a sulfonamide or something, that changes this fat-soluble molecule into a water-soluble mo molecule so it can go around in the bloodstream, go to its target area, things like cholesterol, t testosterone, you know, a lot of the steroid hormones and so forth. But it also makes it water-soluble, but it makes it so that the kidney can grab a hold of it and excrete it as, in its water-soluble form. But we still have a problem. Now we've got a water-soluble compound trying to adhere to a fat. Well, it turns out that that warm, moist, rich, nutrient-rich nutrient environment there on the tarsal gland is a tremendous opportunity place for uh, the growth of a wide variety of different types of bacteria. And we've identified a number of the bacteria that occur there, but there's one in particular that likes to make its living or gets its energy source from breaking these bonds between its fat-soluble compound and its water-soluble compound. So it frees it up, makes it fat-soluble so it can adhere to the tarsal gland, but at the same time, it changes its odor because you probably smelled fresh buck urine, right? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. And if it gets on your knife, you're in trouble. Yeah. But if you, if you catch it right out of the bladder, it doesn't smell at all like a tarsal gland, does it? Oh, that's true. Yeah. It smells that's like, true. It, it smells like urine. Yeah. It doesn't, it do, doesn't have any of that rutting, that, 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 uh, that musty odor. Yeah. It's not until it comes in contact with bacteria that breaks down these bonds that it actually allows these fat soluble compounds then to start producing this musty odor. So it's a real complex way of making a deer stink as bad as a deer stinks during the rut, right? <laughs> right, right, yeah. definitely. <laughs> but, but what it is, and you think about it, as that deer's physiology is changing in the rut, his levels of testosterone and all the byproducts of testosterone metabolism and so forth are increasing dramatically from almost, you know, from very low levels during the summertime and springtime to very high levels during the rut. So obviously his urine changes in composition as well. And a lot of that is reflected in that musty odor that comes out on this tarsal gland. It's the same thing, you know, you think about, you know, athletes that take steroids, how do they test athletes for steroids? They're going to use, they the, use the urine test, yeah. right? Right. It's the same type of thing here. So, you know, that tarsal gland is real important for communication of, for bucks in particular, the communication of dominance or aggressiveness. But that tarsal gland also communicates individual identity as well among deer. It's also interesting to think about it when, when, when a deer works a scrape, he's working the overhanging branch, and then he urinates over his tarsal gland into that scrape, right? Right, yeah, that's what I was going to get at there, yeah. Leaving his personal signature there, right? And he's doing that as a form of dominance, you know, just letting the other bucks in the area know, like, hey, I'm here, this is my spot, don't come over here, and, you know, sniffing around, that kind of thing. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, it, I think it's more that I, it's, I'm here, and obviously a dominant buck is going to want to really broadcast these here. But if you, you know, we've set a lot of cameras up and you've probably done the same thing, setting cameras up or a scrape. And you see all kinds of bucks come into a scrape, especially a good hot scrape. Yeah. And several of them were urinate in there. So they're communicating that they're in, in, they're in the area. Bucks want to know which other bucks are in the area. And they've already, by the time the rut occurs, 
in many cases during the you know after the breakup of the bachelor groups in the fall and you start getting this uh, pre-rut uh, activity a lot of sparring going on they pretty much set up their dominance hierarchy of who that who's in the area and who they know that's in the area right so they're just letting each other know that hey i'm still here you know particularly the dominant box that's interesting because usually i feel like the 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 misconception i guess it would be is that they're establishing their dominance you know throughout the rut but i guess that's the complete opposite of what's actually going on there they've already know who who's in charge before before the rut even is occurring because of this ability to communicate yeah well they, they do in, in, they do with bucks that they're familiar with but we also know that there's a shuffle goes on during the rut and these bucks enlarge their, their home range they do a lot more traveling then they end up encountering um strange bucks and that's that's when you generally have the fights break out is when two two bucks that had previously not known each other as and had a chance to establish who you know the pecking order that's when the dominance fights come because i also that's at the same time their testosterone levels is at, is at its highest that's interesting that's very interesting you know you asked the question how good is a deer's nose and the answer is yes the deer's, everybody knows that a deer's nose especially for smelling a lot of things that are important to a deer is orders of magnitude higher, better than ours. And that's basically built on the structure of their nose. They've got the, you know, the, the, that little black thing at the end of their face isn't their nose. That's just the opening to their nasal passages. And, you know, they got this long rostrum, which they got a lot of those, that, that lot of those cavities in there. And that creates a lot of air movement as the deer is sniffing. But their nose is actually at the back end, right, you know, kind of behind the eyes is, is where the nasal epithelium is. And they have a tremendous amount of, of nasal epithelium compared to the, the surface area of our nasal epithelium. So just basically in the number of receptors that they have, they have orders of magnitudes more than we do, which is one of the reasons they have such a good sense of smell. But one of the things a lot of people don't realize is that the sense of smell is based on you have to have receptor sites for each, in, each individual odor or class of odors. So there may be, you know, it's conceivable. I don't know how possible it is, but it's conceivable that there are things that we could smell better than a deer can smell. But a deer smells what's in, is built to smell stuff that the types of things that are important to it. Right. Does it be able to smell predator odors, to smell those social odors as well, and to smell food odors? And and you know, so each one of those, you can't say that they're a thousand times, ten thousand times, a hundred thousand times better than a human because it depends on which kind of compound you're dealing with. But you know, suffice it to say, it's a heck of a lot more than ours. <laughs> right. Now, one last thing I want to bring in here that uh, one of one of the things a lot of people don't realize is that deer don't have five senses that they that, like we have. They have a sixth sense. Okay. And it's not that, that you know they know when to duck an arrow or something like that, or when to look up a tree. They got a sixth sense in the fact that they actually have two noses, and their second nose is located in their mouth. It's called the vomeral nasal organ. Just inside the deer's mouth, on the deer on the roof of the deer's mouth, right behind where its incisors would be if it had incisors. They don't have you know front teeth in, on the top, of course. Um, there's a little diamond-shaped structure there, <clears throat> and that's called the vomeral nasal organ. And inside, there, right at the back end of that, there's a little pit there. It's called the incisive duct. That's the entrance to uh, that, that for the, that vomeral nasal organ to do some assays of some larger compound, larger um, larger type of molecules you've probably seen when a buck comes up to a doe and uh, and and take and does this behavior called fleeman behavior when he smells her urine yeah he takes some of that urine takes some of that urine up into his mouth and he opens his mouth a little bit and pinches his nostrils and does this fleeman behavior 
what he's actually doing is actually it, it's pumping some of that urine up into that vormal nasal organ for analysis. So that's kind of cool, you know. I'm glad we don't have to do that type of stuff. <laughs> yes, but, definitely. <laughs> but it, 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 it's cool. But you know, a lot of people think what that buck is doing is trying to tell whether or not that doe's in heat or not, which I don't buy that part for for several reasons. But the main one is uh, it hasn't been worked out exactly. But in all the other species that I know of where the vomeral nasal organ has been, you know, a lot of other species have that a vomeral nasal organ. The neural pathway for that vomeral nasal organ doesn't go to the part of the brain that the main nose goes to. It doesn't go to the part of the brain that controls behavior. It goes to the part of the brain that controls the deer's physiology or his reproductive physiology. So when the deer smells, and, and my, my running hypothesis, and I think we've got a lot of evidence in support of it, is when a deer smells a doe in heat, he smells a doe in heat with his nose. He doesn't need to, to, uh, to test her urine with the vomeral nasal organ. What that vomeral nasal organ is doing is, it is it's, it's exciting a part of his brain that controls his reproductive hormone secretions that ultimately end up down increasing his secretions at his gonads, basically building up his testosterone levels or acting like a, a way of building his libido, putting him into more uh, into, in, into a peak rutting condition at the same time those does are in heat. So it's not, it doesn't make him tell that this is the doe that's in heat, it, but it makes him want her to be in, in heat a lot more, right? Right. Okay. Does that, make, does that make sense? Yeah, it definitely does. Yeah, it definitely does. It seems like it's just a way for him to, you know, kind of prepare himself to get himself prepared for whenever the time does come and he's able to get that, the go ahead and breed that doe. So it's, just, it's more of a preparation for him to get ready. Yeah, I've, I've kind of compared it to a, a, a deer Viagra. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> Okay, that's a good way of putting it. So, yeah, so, so you know, the, the, again, it comes back to the important point is a buck knows a doe in heat from the, from the sense of smell from that doe from her, yeah. reper, her reproductive tract, we know, and probably just her whole body permeates that, that smell as well. So will a buck that is in a highly popu- populated area with does, will they have a higher, you know, drive compared to a buck that may be in a, a less populated area because of that? That's an interesting question. I don't. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I, I I wouldn't doubt it. I, I I would. I would think you know just just what when it when it's at at that time. Yeah. It's that time. Right. And he, if he's with her at, at the at the appropriate time, it'll you know he'll have plenty of drive. Right. Yeah. Actually, he and you, you can almost conceive that in a place where the where there's those are lacking, he's probably a little bit more frustrated. So he might be even driven even more. Yeah, that testosterone, I, I was thinking, you know, if that is, you know, what it's doing, the testosterone could be, you know, less compared right. to a buck in a, in a much different environment. But the way you, I mean, you brought, a go, brought up a good point. He may be very frustrated. So his testosterone may be just, it may be very comparable because, because of those hormone levels. That's interesting mm-hmm. though. Yeah. Yeah. That, that I don't know the answer to. But yeah, that's, I mean, that's. So you, you. Go ahead. You want to move on to another sense, or you got something else with it, the sense of smell? No, I think we, I think we got the sense of smell hit on pretty good there. I, I mean, it's basically because I've heard that same uh, kind of the same misconception that you kind of put out there, where some they'll say, you know, a deer sense of smell is a hundred times more, it's two hundred times more, it's twenty times more, whatever. I've heard that used with all kinds of different numbers, and it just really didn't make sense to me because, like, I could be if I'm caught in the right situation with a deer i could be you know 
15 yards from it. Whereas, because if its smell was really, you know, 200 times better than mine, then there's no way that it would be able to get that close. So is it, the way you put it is definitely makes sense that they have they have their environment that they live in and they have a way of biologically determining you know what's important for them in their in their environment yeah and i think some of those some of those numbers you hear some of it comes up uh, some people have come up with that number based on the the surface area of the sensory epithelium compared to a human right which is one way of measuring their sensory capability of their nose but again it comes back to the individual compounds and the receptor sites that they have before we get to the visual one, let's let's do the let's do the sense of hearing first because that's a, that's a shorter one because the the sense of vision is uh, much more complicated. All right, let's get into hearing. So so how well can a deer actually hear? Because I feel like there's a lot of times that you know their hearing is very comparable to a human's. I mean they're they're always turned on and they you can they can flip their ears around and almost like a sonar or like a radar satellite. But I feel like in a lot of ways, for just from my own observations and. I feel like in a lot of ways it's pretty comparable. So, what, what's the actual biology behind it? Okay, well, it's, to date there has been two studies that have looked at that. One of the studies we did at Georgia, where we actually used what's called an auditory brainstem response, where we played tones into a sedated deer and recorded the brainwave patterns in response to them, so we could actually get a measure of the brain activity in response to different sounds which is what they do for a lot of, you know, for they would do for infants or uh, other types of animals as well. So, it's, you know, it gives us an idea of, you know, the deers, uh, of at least what their capability is. And the other study was done, it was a neat study that was done by a, a father-son team up at the University of Toledo, where they trained two deer to respond, basically like, you know, Pavlov's dog. They, they hear a sound and they get a food reward. Right. Or, you know, so it's a, it was kind of, it was a conditioning thing. And basically, the two studies showed pretty much the same thing, a little bit of difference, but not that, you know, not that much. And what they did show is that a deer's hearing capability is quite similar to a human's hearing capability, except that their right shifted a little bit, about one to two octaves to the right. So they're, you know, where we hear best, they hear best just a little bit higher than, than we do. But uh, that's a very minor detail because in the normal range of where most sounds are that are important to a human or a deer, both of us have about the same hearing capability, which fascinates and surprises a lot of people because they, they've been sitting on a deer stand and they've been watching this deer and all of a sudden the deer picks his head up and turns and looks off in a different direction at something it heard that the hunter never heard. Well, how did that happen? How did the hunter never hear it? Well, the hunter probably heard it, just didn't recognize it as something unusual. And kind of the way I explain this is a you know, deer lives in the woods 24-7, 365, right? It knows right. what it's supposed to hear, and it knows what it's not supposed to hear. Just like if you're driving down the road in your pickup truck and you know what their, their truck sounds like, and all of a sudden you hear something unusual, you know that that's an unusual sound, right? Right, yeah, something's wrong. And you, pick, yeah. You, you, pick, you, you pick up on the unusual sound. Or if you drop the dime on a, on a hardwood floor, you can pretty much almost identify that as a dime, right? right. So we, we understand things that we're supposed to hear, and we can identify those things real clear. A deer does the same thing. And it knows the difference between a squirrel hopping through the woods and a hunter stepping on a branch. It can hear those, you know, it can hear that that is something unusual. I need to pay attention to it. Now, there's one other aspect of deer's hearing that's important as well, is they deer do have those large external ears which actually helps them for in two ways. One of them is like kind of cupping your hand to your, you know, to your ears. It accentuates the amount of sound waves going into the ear. So when a deer has its ears cupped towards something, 
it accentuates their hearing ability and they can probably hear better than we can, you know, when they're doing that. But on the flip side, when their ears are cut forward in one direction, it takes away from their hearing capability in the other direction, which is why a deer's ears are constantly in motion, trying to scan in different directions and pick up sounds in different directions. So similar to kind of like the, the audio equipment, like you would see, you know, behind the scenes of, I don't know, maybe a TV show or something where they have that big parabola, plastic parabola where it's, right. you know, it's, it's pointed towards one direction, pick up the noise in that one direction, but everything behind it, it's going to be pretty poorly affected. So it's, it kind of has that same, right. like you said, the, the cupping mechanism. Right. So you, you, it kind of takes away the, the background noise and, and focuses on what the noise of interest is. There's one other aspect of this is kind of interesting as well. You know, I told you that they're they're kind of right shifted. They hear a little bit higher octaves than right. you know about an octave or octave or two higher is their best hearing, and part of that uh, may be due to their ability, an animal's ability to localize the source of a sound is related to the size of its head. And when you have a small head like a deer, a deer's ears are actually you know quite close together. Mm-hmm. To be able to localize a sound, it needs a higher pitch, a higher frequency. And, and as, as body size, as head size decreases, the ability to locate sound requires higher and higher pitch. So what kind of, what kind of effect has this had on deer as far as, you know, avoiding or getting themselves caught up in auto collisions? I know that's something that you guys have looked into quite a bit. I mean, is, is it more of a sense of hearing that, uh, either gets them into trouble or out of trouble when, in, in terms of being beside a road? You know, you know there, there's been a lot of people, and you've probably seen these things like deer whistles that people put on their vehicles. It's supposed yeah. to produce this ultrasonic sound that scares deer off a road. Well, you know, a couple of things related to that. Uh, first of all, deer don't hear in the pitches, that the, the frequencies that those things are supposed to make anyways. They don't hear very well at all. And number two is, if you think about it, there's a thing called attenuation, and, and sounds that are really, really, really high pitched get attenuated very fast. In other words, they don't carry far. That's why bull, you know, foghorns and stuff like that are all low pitch stuff because they they care that sound carries long distance, but high pitch doesn't carry very far. So for a deer whistle to produce a frequency in the frequency that they say they produce that would project far enough in front of that vehicle going 55 miles an hour down the road for to be able to pick up by be able to be picked up by deer and then that give that deer time to react on top of it that that uh, frequency would have to be so loud it would probably shatter every window in that vehicle interesting it, 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 it probably would you know it, i mean it would just have to be incredibly loud right. high pitch you know sound like that and there's no reason to think that you know why would that scare a deer off the road any different than a low pitch lower pitch sound so basically, you know, the sound is not going to do anything. And, and some of our research has shown that, they, you know, sound. We, we've tried a lot of different sound production types of things to keep deer or avoid deer vehicle collisions. And we found no response to deer to different pitches and so forth. So I don't think sound is going to be anything that's going to be useful as far as deer vehicle collisions. Right. So is there is there actually a solution to avoiding if you, you know, Say, for example, you have a deer on the side of the road. Is there actually a solution that you can do? I mean, I've heard, <laughs> I mean, I've heard all kinds of, all kinds of different crazy things, you know, from yelling out the window to honking your horn or anything. So these types of sounds, especially I feel like in deer with in suburban environments, they're probably going to be, I mean, that's part of their environment. They're probably going to be accustomed to that kind of thing. They're going to be accustomed to noises and 
to produce a reaction to where they run away from the car probably wouldn't give them the reaction that they're actually wanting to occur. Yeah, you know, and if, if you think about when most vehicle collisions occur with deer, you know, the vast majority occur in that one month period around the rut. Yeah. And, and you know, and that's when deer are running across the road and they're 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 not thinking with their head. Right. And you know, they're they're not, you know, there's a lot of a lot of deer crossing the road just because there is a tremendous amount of deer movement. Bucks are chasing does, they're in unfamiliar areas as well. Um, all these types of things are going on hunting, you know, it's hunting season as well. So that amount of deer movement is causing an increased probability that that deer is going to cross the road. Many times, uh, you know, if, particularly like during the summertime, you're driving down the road, you'll see a deer standing on the side of the road. A lot of times those deer are just feeding on the side of the road. If you just let them go and do nothing, you're probably going to be better off than anything. Because if you try to scare them, they, you know, 50, 50 chance they're going to go in front of you instead of away from exactly. you. So in those situations, just, you know, just let them be and just, you know, that month of November in the East, you know, you just be very, very diligent about watching what's going on on both sides of the roads as you're driving. Yeah. I've observed that before where you'll be driving down the road and, you know, you'll see a, a buck come running across the road and he's not even aware of anything going on. He's just trying to get across the road to, to pick up on, I guess, going back on the smell like we were talking about a minute ago, going mm -hmm. back on the smell, he's picked up a, probably a scent from, you know, a doe or something. And he's trying to get across the road to figure out what's going on as far as, you know, figuring out where, if there's a doe over there or whatever. And he, you can just see in his behavior that he's not aware of, of his environment. He's not aware of these cars that are, you know, but could potentially hit him out there. Just two years ago, I saw a small little, uh, six point buck who just, you know, basically sprinting across the road. I mean, he didn't, he, he didn't pay any attention to anything around him and he just went on down into the woods and, you know, carried on. And this was middle of November, whenever, whenever that occurred. Yeah. And think, think about this too. That's also the time where you got a lot of yearling bucks dispersing. So they're all in unfamiliar territory as well. They might've never encountered that road before. Right. So, yeah, there's all kinds of things going on, but you know, that, that drive to reproduce in a buck is, you know, that's what, guarantees the perpetuation of the species and that's much more important than his personal safety at that point he's got a he's got a very short time to pass on his genes so you know safety you know he's kind of throw caution to the wind right right and it's kind of interesting we, we, we we've got a big study that we're just finishing up down on the florida panther range down in south florida where we've had a bunch of gps callers out on bucks and does down there and the uh the the mortality rate of bucks to you know the that are killed by Panthers goes way up during the rut because these bucks are moving so much more. They just do a lot more risky behavior because it's the, the rewards worth the risk. They've let their guard down and they're not right. as aware of the things around them. Yeah. Right. Put it in a hunting context. It's not necessarily the noise you make. It's the kind of noise you make. Yeah. And if it's an, any noise, that's unusual. Uh, you know, you can walk through the woods and mimic the cadence of a squirrel and do a lot better than just the, 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 the clump clump of a human walking through the woods. If a human can tell the difference between a squirrel and a, and a, and a human, um, certainly a deer can. Clinging the, the bow up against the metal ladder probably isn't a good idea whenever you're trying to get up into your stand. <laughs> yeah, we all, we've all done that. Yeah, of course. Right? <laughs> trying to bring... Missed, the... shot, missed shot opportunities. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
So trying to mimic, basically trying to mimic the the sounds of the environment to, especially entering and, and leaving the woods to basically, yeah, just try not to draw too much attention to yourself, too much out right. of the ordinary attention to yourself. So is blue light as far as vision goes? So is blue light? So I've, I've always heard that, you know, first thing in the morning, last thing in the evening, those are the best times for deer movement. I mean, I think oh, there's a lot of different things, you know, temperature and, you know, thermals and all that kind of thing that can play a part in that. But as far as their vision goes, you know, is that blue light period, those, I, I guess it'd be 30 minutes ish to an hour or so, depending on the weather and that kind of thing. Is that going to be its prime movement because of its vision or what, what's the biology of a, of a deer's eye going to be looking like as far as uh, how it can see? Yeah. That's an interesting thought, but uh, and and I'm going to take you back quite a ways to understand how a deer's eyes work. Okay. And um, we've only got an hour or less than an hour, so I can, we can't cover it all. But there right. are so yeah. many differences, in, so many differences in a way a deer's eyes work and the anatomy and physiology of a deer's eyes versus our eyes. That when they're looking at something and we're looking at something, they're seeing something that's almost completely different. So let's, let's first of all talk about some things that, you know, general knowledge about a deer's eye is one of which is, you know, they've got a much larger, much larger eye, much larger opening or pupil opening to the eye, pupil diameter, uh, which obviously lets a lot more light in, just like the objective lens or objective lens on a scope would, you know, you increase the, the objective uh, lens, you're going to increase the light gathering ability by the square of the diameter increase. So a deer's eye has a lot more ability to let light in. They also have that reflective layer called a tapetum lucidum behind the rods and cones. So when light comes in a deer's eye, it goes through the through, through the pupil opening, and then it goes to the back of the ret goes to the retina where it crosses over the rods and cones, and that's where the light is picked up. But in a deer and a lot of other nocturnal animals, everything from a whippoorwill to an alligator to a dog, they have this what's called a tapetum lucidum which then reflects that light back out over the rods and cones a second time. That's why these, all these animals there, you see the eye shine from them. Okay. Yeah. That's we don't see that. We don't yeah. see that. So that basically what that does is double the amount of light that they get that goes over the rods and cones compared to what a human could have. So if their, if their pupil opening is three times the size of ours, which would mean nine times the light gathering ability. And then you got a tapetum lucidum. We're up to 18 times the ability to see in dim light conditions that we got which is one of the reasons deer can run through the woods at night and we can't do that. Right. right yeah. <laughs> we could okay. for a short period of time until we smacked into a tree. <laughs> right. But, but it also, that, that tapetum lucidum also takes away, and we'll talk about that later. It takes away a little bit of the visual acuity. Okay. So, but you know, there's been a lot of discussion, you know, early on people used to think that deer only saw in black and white, which we know is not true. We did a study way back in about 2000, 2001, where we went into the deer's eye and we were able to look at the, the rods and cones and ad, actually identify the photopigments on the deer's cones. And cones are what we see. Rods are what we see in black and white. Cones are what we see in color. But our ability to see in color is built on the photoreceptors that are on the particular cones. We have three photoreceptors in our eyes. One peaks in red, one peaks in blue, and one peaks in green. RGB cables, right? And all our other all the other colors that we see are an integration of those three colors. So we see what is called trichromatically. When we did that study years ago, we found out as deer don't see trichromatically, they see what's called dichromatically. They have a blue cone that's very similar to our blue cone, 
and then they have a what's a medium wavelength cone that's about halfway between our reds and our greens, which would suggest what what we what we've concluded from that what we did there is deer see blues fairly well, and there's some there's some reasons why they could probably see blues better than we can. We'll get into that later, but they don't see as far into the red spectrum as we do, which means a dark dark red would look black to them. And which also means they don't see blaze orange as vividly as we do yeah, as well. Exactly. So there's no, no, no excuse for not wearing blaze orange. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So, but that was based on physiology. We were inside the deer's eyes. So we, we, need to, we needed to figure out, have the deer tell us exactly what they're seeing. Because there's other things that could be going on that just because their eyes said that they had the capability to see these doesn't necessarily mean that's how good they can see them. For example... The ability to see blues in our eyes we have in our lenses we have a yellow filter and that yellow filter filters out some of the blue lights and particularly the ultraviolet light because we're a long-lived species and if we let all that ultraviolet in it burn out our retina well from our work our, our, our physiology work our, our anatomy work it turns out the deer don't seem to have that yellow filter so they're actually admitting more blue light into their eyes then we went back in and looked at the distribution of the rods and cones. And it turns out that the distribution of the rods and cones on a deer's retina is very, very different than ours. Our rods, our, our cones for our, for our color vision are all, sent, are, are all really highly focalized in one particular spot called, in our retina called a fovea centralis. Because when, we're, when a human being is looking at something, we're looking at a point in space. Our eyes are constantly moving. And we're looking at something, uh, something near, something far. We're reading. We're, our eyes are scanning a page. When you're looking at your computer, you're looking all over the screen. So our eyes are constantly moving, trying to focus an individual point in space. Well, it turns out the distribution of the cones in the deer's eye doesn't look like that. The blue cones are kind of scattered all over the deer's eye, the retina. And the longer wavelength cones are actually in a band that go all the way across the retina. The blue cones are in higher concentration than they are in humans, even in the fovea centralis, and that band for the longer wavelength cones are in high densities all the way across that retina, but not quite as high as in our fovea centralis. What this means is when there's, a, when, when, when there's something moving out there that's in the blues or particularly in any of the colors, think about what's, what happens. If we, have you ever watched a horse out in the pasture? Because a, a horse's eyes is very similar to a deer's eye. They got this slit pupil opening, and when, it, when if a horse is standing out in the pasture and a car drives by, what's the horse do? It just picks up his head and, and stares. It doesn't, it doesn't track that car with its eyes. It actually holds its eyes constant, which means the image of that vehicle moving moves across the retina and moves across that retinal streak. So they don't have to track movement by following it with their eyes. The movement actually moves across the back of their eye in their retina. Interesting. Almost like a panoramic right. perception. So now okay. think about how, how this works. For a deer to run through the woods, what they're seeing is this panorama going by them as they're running through the woods. Instead of we're running through the woods, we have to look at every stick, every branch, every rock, and everything else like that, trying to identify that and keep track of all that stuff. It's all moving in a panorama for a deer. That What we call that visual streak, that streak of cones across the retina, are all in the horizontal because where's danger going to come for a deer? It's going to come from the side, not probably. Not from above right? or not from below. It's going to come. It's going to come from the horizon, right? Right. 
So what that means, what, and what this translates to, is deer have a tremendous ability to pick up movement. But it also means that their visual acuity of a stationary object is not that good. Matter of fact, we've done some work on deer's visual acuity of their ability to look at a stationary object. And believe it or not, they'd almost have to wear corrective lenses to drive. Interesting. They can't see, they can't identify an, an object unless it's moving very well. But once that thing, once they start to move, that's when they start to pick up, you know, they'll get the three dimensions on it and it, and it enhances their visual acuity. Let me give you an example of this. You've seen this a thousand times. You walk out into a field, into a food plot, and you look way 200 yards at the other end of the food plot. You look down there and they say, hey, there's a deer down there. Mm -hmm. And what's that deer do? It looks at you and says, what's that? And then it stares at you. Then it starts moving side to side. Yeah. What it's trying to do is get a three-dimensional on you. Because if you remain stationed, how many times have you had a deer walk right up on you and not seen you? I mean, several times. Yeah, if you're stationary, right. you know, they're not going to pick out, you know, identify that object. But as soon, but, you know, as, soon as you move, uh, that's, you know, they pick that up in a, in a heartbeat. Which, that, that is the deer's biggest defensive mechanism, is identifying movement. So much more than a sense of smell, I worry more in a stand about, be, you know, being picked up by moving. Because a deer, you know, particularly if you're hunting on the ground, deer have a tremendous ability to pick up that movement. That's interesting because I've always heard, you know, you know, the sense of smell, which of course is going to be important, but it seems like, you know, sitting, sitting still and, you know, being patient, not moving, not making unnecessary movements is going to be what's really going to be more, allow us to be more su successful in the stand. So from a hunting right. standpoint, whenever you are spotted, you know, like, like the example you gave, whenever you see the deer off in the distance, you are spotted. The best defense is just to stand there and kind of let it go back to doing what it's doing. Yeah. Don't, you know, do not try to move. Just, yeah. you know, let them figure out that you're, you're, you're a fence post, right? Right. Because yeah. until you move, you're a fence post to them. So now we get to your question about blues and it, yeah. turn, it does turn out that deer, deer have a much enhanced probably 20 times and that's just a ballpark guess of, of ability to see in the blue part of the spectrum compared to us because of the one of the aspects is that yellow filtering they also have more blue cones they have a different distribution of blue cones so blue can be very useful for them which is what you would expect an animal that moves crepuscularly morning and evening or at night, the main color, the main part of the color spectrum that's out there at that time was going to be, you know, highly dominated by the blue part, blue spectrum. So it allows them to see uh, a, a little bit better using those wavelengths of light, which is very interesting because when you look at a lot of modern day camo, a lot of modern day camo have a lot of brighteners in them that does reflect a lot of white and in all the white there's blue. So That's at true. that time yeah. of night, when you, when you got blue light out there, that was, that camel was reflecting blue. You're just a beacon out there. Right. <laughs> so you're not hidden at all. You're actually shining bright for them. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, and I, I think that, you know, that, that, that any camel that comes up with, you know, the, you know, the ability to hide the blue part of that spectrum is going to be much more effective, particularly for a morning and evening uh, camouflage. Right. So going back to that yellow filter, so during the day, since deer don't have that yellow filter that we have, that kind of blocks our retina for us, do deer, do their vision, does it begin to decrease throughout the day? Like as the sun is coming up and we're getting out of that blue light, you know, midday, 
does their vision actually begin to decrease as far as you know their their acuity goes because of that absence no, of the I, yellow I, I filter? Don't, I don't think so. I mean, I, no, because all those wavelengths are lighter are still there, and actually they're much more enhanced. Okay. So their visual acuity is still going to continue to go up. Okay. Now here's let me tell you one more thing that's really cool. That we just we just we haven't even published on this. We're just working on getting the manuscript done. But there's this concept of um, of, of vision called a, the the flicker fusion rate. And let me you you've you've seen this kind of experiment before, where you see this ball this ball is flashing on your computer, and it flashes faster and faster and faster and faster until it gets to a point where it looks like a solid ball, yeah. but it's still flashing. Okay. What that what when it gets to that certain frequency, that's called the flicker fusion rate. That got gets to your eye's ability to process visual images. You just can't process it any faster than that. But we actually went into the deer's eyes and and determined what their flicker fusion rate was compared to ours. And it turns out their flicker fusion rate is at least twice as fast as ours. In other words, they're processing images, visual images, twice as fast as we can process visual images. Now think about that when it comes to detecting movement as well. Right. Even a movement can, movement of a know, finger or a hand, you're in trouble. Yeah, I mean they they can process stuff so fast that you know it, it's it, it both at in the daytime and at night, which was what you would expect for an animal that's going to be running through the woods, right? You got to be able to process that stuff, especially at the speeds that they're running through at. Right. And also to to detect a predator moving through the woods as well. So their 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 processing speed is really incredible. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. That's a that's a great way of you know putting everything out there and, and and really laying out how a deer's biology works for it. And I've got I've got so many questions I'd I'd love to ask you, but unfortunately we're running out of time. And <laughs> as much as I want to keep on going and want to pick your brain more, then I think we're gonna have to we're gonna have to stop at the at taste. So I wanted to wanted to get the final I guess the final sense here and well. I guess in a way it's the final sense in as far as, you know, human biology goes, but as far as taste goes, I'm sure this is very similar to its smell, but does, does a deer have really have a preference in how a, a certain food source tastes? I mean, cause you see all these, you know, apple flavored products that, you know, are floating around in the hunting industry. You see all these, uh, different flavored things that are, that are out there. Does that really have an effect on what, a what a deer prefers. You know, obviously deer have a sense of taste and there are certain things that they would prefer over other things. I mean, that's, that's the way it got made them. That's the way it wouldn't just make sense that way. Uh, and the other thing is realize that also that the sense of taste is really built on the sense of smell. So, you know, in humans, we, 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 our taste buds can do sweet, sour, salty, and bitter, right? And the rest of our sense of taste comes from our sense of smell. Uh, you take away a guy's person's sense of smell and we pretty much lose our our ability to taste a lot of foods. And I'm sure it's the same way with deer and deer are very, very capable of identifying all different types of smells and identifying what's good to eat and what's not good to eat. And if there's certain things that smell that it might be more nutrition, it might be more, you know, it's hard to get inside a deer's head to know what what exactly they're thinking. But, uh, you know, it's, you know, any type of flavor enhancer, conceivably could work now it's going to make deer come from a further distance or is it going to attract them quicker maybe not but it may make them eat more of it yeah it's interesting because i've seen you know the the flavor from I mean, the apple flavored corn i've seen you know the persimmon flavored mineral and all these types of things that that are i guess they're they're 
triggered or they're they're targeted towards these deer and i in order to have them eat more or in order to bring them from those further distances but it definitely seems like based on based on what you're getting at here is that that they do have a preference for for those types of products i guess you know, it kind of surprised me when you see something like apple flavored corn. You know, deer like corn just well enough as, as itself. You know? Right, right. And I've actually seen and that there's before. A lot, of where there, a lot of places where there aren't apples, you know. So, you know, I don't know that you need to enhance corn, but. Yeah, that's 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 interesting. So thank you very much for, you know, spilling out everything, everything you had there for as far as the, the sensory capabilities go of a deer. And like I said, I've got so many things I want, I had on our list here and we've been talking a little bit the past, I guess a week and a half or so about what we're actually going to talk about on, on this episode of the podcast. And we narrowed it down to the the sensory capabilities. And I've got, like I said, so many other things that I'd love in the future to talk with you about, you know, things like their migration patterns and antler physiology, aging deer, all the, all these things that, that are, interesting not only to me you know as as somebody who i feel like i'm somewhat science-minded and but also as a hunter so how the deer actually works and i can't i can't mm-hmm. i can't thank you enough for for being on the show and, and sharing your knowledge and your research with me tyler if you want to do it again at any time just you know just let me know we can go and talk about any other subject you know when i when i saw what your podcast title was and it comes from acts 10 i said yeah i'll, I'll, I'll do it absolutely that's yeah <laughs> so. that's where it came from uh acts chapter 10 and rise kill eat and that's that's really what we uh what we embody this whole show about I actually just had had a conversation with jeff danker and we got into the whole faith and hunting side of things and you know i had to of course mm-hmm. I, I try to be as diverse as i can but have hunting as the as the middle as the centrality of the whole podcast show so again i can't i can't thank you enough and i always have one question that i like to ask my guests at the end of the show and with your background and with your knowledge and everything i'm i'm interested to see what you come up with with here and that's uh my question for you is what does hunting mean to you well that's that that is a loaded question and we can do another hour on that i think yeah absolutely uh, but <laughs> You know, and and I, and I, I knew you were going to ask a question like this, and I, I thought a little bit about it here this afternoon. And you know, I, I grew up in a family of hunters. I grew up where hunting was the challenge, and that's why one of the reasons why we all hunt. It's a challenge. It's a sport. You know, it's pitting yourself against a, a wild animal on his terms, his or her terms. And you know, I think most people progress through that that phase of you know, and, and the kill is 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 important. But uh, you know, I've I've reached an age where I've got. Uh, I've got beyond that. I think, uh, you know, obviously hunting, if you don't kill, you don't hunt, Right. obviously. So killing is still part of it. But I think the biggest thing for me, as far as hunting is concerned, is it's, it's a chance for me to leave the world of humanity and get back into God's creation and just spending the time out there without my cell phone, without a, somebody wanting to do a podcast without, you know, right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, all this other type of stuff where I can actually get, one-on-one with God and spend some time out there and, and enjoy what he created out there and, and just see stuff that, you know, you, you can never see, uh, in any part of man's creation. And it's just a, it's, it's just phenomenal for me to get that peace and that tranquility. And at the same time, still have the challenge of trying to, you know, pitch yourself against another animal. 
right? There's a certain bit of competition that, that comes with it because you're, you're out in the woods and you're in this, this animal's environment and you're trying to, you know, I guess outwit it is a, is a way to put it. And, uh, there's, there's definitely an appreciation for that animal. And then of course, there's always that appreciation of God as the designer of that animal as God as the designer of, uh, you know, creation, the creator. And yeah, there's, I've always said that some of my, some of my favorite moments of getting close with God have come, you know, when I'm out in the woods pursuing some type of animal, whether it be a deer or turkey or whatever that whatever it may be some of my best moments with god have have happened out in those in those places hey you, you know that's where god found me on on a deer stand is when where, when i finally committed <laughs> i was i was actually sitting on a deer stand that's awesome that's awesome that's a, that's a great 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 story and great information you just shared and uh i really do appreciate it what kind of resources do you have for hunters and for land managers and people who basically just want to educate themselves further on how a whitetail is wired and its biology, you know, all these types of things, what kind of resources would you suggest? I'll, I'll tell you what, the best clearinghouse for information about deer, and you know, there's a lot of other universities doing re- research on deer as well. And almost all of us will at some point, if as our research projects come to fulfillment, we'll end up publishing an articles or something in uh, you're familiar with the Quality Deer Management Association, yeah, I'm sure. absolutely. And their their uh, their journal, Quality Whitetails. That that organization, as far as disseminating the information that's coming from the scientists and different universities around the country, and disseminated out to the hunting public, that is what they do. They're they're they are an educational resource. They have so many educational materials. Uh, I've 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 got three books that they sell. Uh, you know, the original book, Quality Whitetails, that you know, kind of was part of the start of the quality deer management move uh, after Al Brothers' book, obviously. Uh, and then there's a book, Quality Food Plots. There's, there's all kinds of resources there that, you know, if you want information on deer, and then they've got the deer steward class, classes as well, where you can get really in-depth information in a classroom setting. Uh, uh, you can actually take them online as well. Uh, just fabulous, fabulous information that's being taught by the best biologists in the country. That's great. I'm definitely going to include some of those links into the show notes of this episode here. That way people can access them from this show. So thank you for sharing that with me. And I'm definitely yeah. going to go through and check some of those out as well. Yeah, it's very simple. Uh, QDMA.com is the organization. And another one that you might want to look into is there's a, a, a the, the uh, National Deer Alliance that's actually putting a little bit of a, a you know uh, an advocacy uh, part to this. The QDMA, the white, uh, there's there's several nonprofit deer type organizations that are part of this National Deer Alliance, and you can join the National Deer Alliance for free and just sign up online. Uh, just go to the national, go to their webpage, and you can get a, you get weekly digest of of things that are coming out of, uh, about deer. They just put together a weekly digest to send it to you. Choose what you want to read and what you don't want to read, and it's free. That's great. You can't beat free. I mean, it's, free resources is hard to come by nowadays. <laughs> Certainly, certainly. And, it, and it's a great organization because they are very politically con- connected. They're working with all different state agencies to do things to help support the, the cause of the deer hunter. Of course, yeah. And of course, you guys have also your uh, website, the UGA Deer Lab. I've gone on there, especially a lot more over the past couple of weeks, but I've gone on there even in the past and looking at some of the research you guys have done and some of the information you guys share on there. And you guys provided some really, really good 
you you really dumb it down to to where just about anybody is able to go on there and absorb the information and be able to use it and be able to put it into a useful way. I appreciate that. But yeah, thank you so much for for being on the show today. I'm I'm definitely going to take you up on those future episodes because like i said i've got so much more i want to talk with you about but as we're kind of coming up on time here i I guess i'll have to let you go for now (laughs) all right sounds great i enjoyed it tyler all right thank you very much you have a good rest of your night and i'll be in contact with you over the coming months so again thank you so much for being on today (laughs) 